You will note on the overhead the, the outline, the theme and the outline. Of course, the theme is the coming day of the Lord, and we have worked our way through uh, emphasis on the day of the Lord judgment in relationship to Judah, day of the Lord judgment in relationship to specific nations, uh, and then really culminating in day of the Lord judgment in relationship to the entire world. Uh, we are now in that last section of Zephaniah, chapter 3, 9 through 20, future restoration for Israel. There are two books in the Old Testament that have as their theme, the major theme, the overall theme, the day of the Lord. And they are the book of Joel and the book of Zephaniah. However, a day of the Lord theme is interwoven throughout the prophets in the Old Testament. It's just that a lot of these prophets like Isaiah got, have many themes. Uh, but uh, Joel and Zephaniah in particular really zero in on the day of the Lord theme. The day of the Lord refers to a prophetic time when the God of Israel radically intervenes in human affairs in dramatic fashion that undeniably demonstrates his lordship as the God of Israel. Uh, one of these times was in relationship to the Babylonian captivity, uh, which in reality foreshadows yet another day of the Lord event that will usher in the Messianic times, uh, the kingdom, the Messiah, and, and uh, then the coming kingdom. Thus, the day of the Lord theme has a near partial aspect and yet a distant complete aspect of fulfillment. And these aspects are often tightly interwoven in the prophetic scriptures. Now, critics have said that Zephaniah actually wrote two books. There was actually maybe two different authors uh, with two different messages. That's what critics sometimes want to say. say one message or one book was a message of judgment while the other was a, a message of blessing. And they're, and they're so different that it couldn't be the same person who wrote both messages is what the critics want to say. Well, that's uh, missing the point. Both of these themes, one of judgment and one of blessing, fit properly together under the umbrella, under the heading of the Day of the Lord theme. This is consistent not only in Zephaniah, but also in the book of Joel and in the other Day of the Lord passages that we have in the prophets. In truth, it is the coming Day of the Lord judgment that is the very means by which God will bring about the ultimate restoration of His people and of the whole world. <clears throat> the Day of the Lord is a time of purging and purification that ushers in the Messiah and His kingdom. This time of kingdom restoration is what is in view now in Zephaniah 3, 9 through 20. The day of the Lord has two main aspects. Uh, it has a judgment aspect, or what we might call a dark aspect, but it also has a blessing aspect, or what we might call a light aspect. And so, building on that day theme, day of the Lord theme, the day of the Lord uh, demonstrates the lordship of God from both aspects, a dark one as well as a light one, corresponding to the Jewish day, which begins with darkness, a darkness phase, which is then followed by a light phase, and then concluding again with darkness. So we might illustrate it this way, as someone has. I stole this from somebody. But <clears throat> after the rapture, we enter into the day of the Lord. This whole period is the day of the Lord. Starts with a very dark phase that we call the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. And of course, that gives way to the, the second coming 
that changes everything. And that's what we're talking about tonight. We enter into the golden age, the light phase. And that will continue on through the kingdom reign of Jesus Christ, concluding with, you know, you got Satan released and he goes out to deceive the nations. And here again at the end, it concludes really kind of with darkness as judgment falls on all these and um, God destroys everything and, and then will create a new heavens and a new earth. Well, let's pick it up as we get into Zephaniah 3, 9. Uh, let's read there together. <clears throat> Zephaniah 3, 9. For then I will restore to the people a, peoples a pure language, that they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. Verse 9 marks a major transition from the day of the Lord judgment to the day of the Lord blessing, to the millennial kingdom, from the tribulation period to the kingdom. And we saw in verse 8 that God has determined that he will gather all the nations together in judgment in which he will pour out on them his fierce anger. So we left off last time in verse 8. This will culminate in what we commonly refer to as uh, the Battle of Armageddon that will climax in the second coming of Jesus Christ when he comes to earth to set up his kingdom. So we have a, the day of the Lord judgments presented in Zephaniah chapter 1 through chapter 3 verse 8, which is then followed by a climactic time of blessing as seen in Zephaniah 3 9 through 20. Now, once the kingdom is ushered in, God says he will then restore to the peoples a pure language. Now, scholars have wrestled over exactly what this means, exactly what the concept of a pure language entails. Clearly, the context argues that all peoples of the world will no longer have a defiled language that is tainted with idolatry or blasphemy. Now their speech will be God-oriented in true worship. And we know way back in the Old Testament, in Exodus chapter 23, that God said, And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect and make no mention of the name of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. To do so would be to have a, a, an impure speech. Well, it's going to be different in the kingdom. Uh, no one's going to be talking about other gods. There will be nobody running after other gods. It's not going to be that way. Uh, this is how it will be in the kingdom. Uh, words are a reflection of the heart. As Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And in this kingdom context, pure glorifying uh, speech to God will really define the world. Now, some have thought that the idea of a restored pure language may also mean that the entire world will once again speak a single language, such as Hebrew, uh, thus reversing the effects of the, of the Babel effect in Genesis 11. Now, recall at that time, because of the spirit of idolatry, that God confused the languages, or confused the language, resulting in the people speaking many languages and being scattered uh, throughout the world. Well, some believe that this pure language may be a restoration back to the pre-Babel days. And they would point to texts like this one, for example, that may give a little hint in that direction. Isaiah chapter 19, verse 18. is a kingdom context here. In that day, the five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan. Uh, that's the promised land in this context. And swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction or, or, or the sun. 
So, uh, but the point here that is zeroed in on is that they will speak the language of the Holy Land, of, of Canaan, as it's referred to here in Isaiah 19, verse 18. Well, evidently, these cities will be five key worship centers in the land of Egypt in that day, and uh, they will particularly function for the propagation of God's truth in the kingdom. Uh, they will speak Hebrew and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts, showing their solidarity with Israel. Uh, and the question then becomes this, will this be indicative of what takes place throughout the whole world? Is this representative of what we kind of have going on throughout the entire world? Well, that's not clearly spelled out. It is clear that the pure language connects to the calling on the name of the Lord and all serving Him with one accord. So character is certainly uh, the main thrust here. Uh, calling on the name of the Lord is associated with believing on the Lord and worship throughout the Scripture, starting in Genesis 4.26. Calling on the name of the Lord recognizes His Lordship authority and depends on Him as Savior. Those going into the kingdom will be those who have called on the name of the Lord in the day of the Lord. And this is a key emphasis within the context of the day of the Lord theme in the book of Joel. In uh, what is clearly a tribulation context, if we were to study it in context, in Joel chapter 2, verse 32, it says, And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. Again, we know the context here is the day of the Lord, tribulation period, and uh, when Jesus will come and deliver his own. These here in Zephaniah will be those who have called on the name of the Lord in the day of the Lord judgment and therefore were saved out of it and have thereby come into the kingdom in their, <clears throat> in their mortal bodies. A footnote here, in the New Testament in Acts 2.21, Peter quotes from Joel 2.32 on the day of Pentecost explaining to the people how to be saved. And then again, Paul in Romans 10.13 quotes from Joel 2.32, emphasizing that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Where did Paul get that? Well, he got it from Joel 2.32. And this shows us that this is key when it comes to understanding the nature of a true saving faith. Saving faith recognizes Christ as Lord and expresses that by calling on Him for salvation. This truth applies not only to the day of the Lord, which is the context of both Joel and Zephaniah, but also to those of us in the church age, as seen in Romans 10.13. The nature of saving faith ever remains the same, as seen in the Hall of Faith chapter of Hebrews chapter 11. Furthermore, God says these will all serve the Lord with one accord. The phrase with one accord is more literally with one shoulder. Uh, it is a metaphor taken from a yoke of oxen. Under the yoke, they would be shoulder to shoulder, as it were, working in unison with one shoulder. That's the sense here. The whole world at this point will be united in serving the Lord together. This is the golden age of the kingdom. So note what will define those who go into the kingdom after the terrible time of judgment previously described. Uh, after the world has been purged, what are we looking at? Well, these three things emphasized here. A restored pure language... All call on the name of the Lord. All serve the Lord with one accord. And you understand initially going into the kingdom, only the saved are going to go into the kingdom. 
Those who have saved the tribulation, I'm talking about people in their, their mortal bodies now. Of course, we're going to be here in our glorified bodies as the church. We're coming with Jesus Christ to reign with Jesus Christ. So we're going to be here in our glorified bodies. But we're talking about these who have come through the tribulation period in their mortal bodies. This is who we're, is being described here. Then the prayer will largely be answered, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I think the full uh, answer to that prayer uh, comes in the eternal state. Uh, because there's still going to be some sin in the uh, millennial reign. Even though Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron, there's still going to be some sin. There's still be some death. The person who dies at 100 will be like a child who has died, as it says in Isaiah. So there's still going to be some of that. Uh, verse 10 continues. From beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Now, some translate Ethiopia as Cush, which seems to be representative of the places most remote here. And if we were to look on a map, Cush is way down south here. Uh, so we're talking, you know, you come down into Egypt here and below, way down here, Cush, uh, and uh, way down here by where the, the Nile becomes the Blue Nile and then the White Nile. So this was considered like very remote place. And that seems to be the sense here. The sense is that the remnant of God's people, the Jews, who have become true worshipers, shall make their way home to the promised land, uh, to the key place of worship. And as they come, they will bring an offering of worship. And the qualifier here, the, the daughter of my dispersed ones, refers to Jews who have been scattered. This is homecoming time for them. And as they return home to the land of promise, they will be coming home restored. Note verse 11 says, In that day you shall not be shamed for any of your deeds in which you transgress against me. For then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. What we have pictured here is God's blessing on his restored people, the restored remnant of Israel in the kingdom. And in repentance, this remnant will be broken. Uh, initially, they will be broken. Uh, Zechariah is clear here. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son. And grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. Jump down to the next chapter and it says, In that day a fountain... The idea is of cleansing, shall be open for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. So there is going to be um, a brokenness over how they have really missed the truth of the Messiah, I think, up to this point. Now they finally come to see him and uh, they will be broken. But in the restoration of the kingdom, Israel shall be so fully cleansed. Note it talks about a fountain is opened. Uh, they shall be so fully cleansed and restored that their shame shall be completely removed. The deeds they have done is more literally the terrible deeds. The humbled have repented and have been thoroughly cleansed to where it is no longer an issue. But those who refuse to repent will be purged from Jewish society. And who is this? Uh, he says, I, Then I will take away from your midst those who rejoice in your pride. You shall no longer, uh, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Uh, 
So, the besetting sin is pride. This is the besetting sin of mankind. And those who refuse to humble themselves before the Lord and refuse to call on His name will be removed from the midst of Israel. He specifically says this applies to the proud and the haughty. Only the humbled will go into the kingdom and experience God's kingdom restoration. The proud aren't going in. That's true of the Jews, and it's really true of all people. In saving faith, in calling on the name of the Lord, a deep humility is involved in which a person humbles themselves, recognizing their sinfulness and God's holiness and their need of a Savior. And so they humble themselves before the truth of, of Christ's lordship and his being Savior. A saving faith is a position of humility. The saved are those who have been humbled before God. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Isaiah fifty-seven fifteen. thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and revive the heart of the contrite ones. That's what God's going to do ultimately for Israel in the kingdom, uh, that remnant that has been humbled. I think this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At the end of the day, only the converted humbled will have access to God's holy mountain. Uh, Note that terminology here. The terminology holy mountain is often used to describe Jerusalem in the kingdom, which at that point will be the city of the great king. In Isaiah, this is a common designation of the worship center of the entire world. Now note uh, these references here, just as uh, there's lots of places we could go here. But in Joel chapter 3, verse 17, So you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in, in Zion, my holy mountain, Then Jerusalem shall be holy, and no alien shall ever pass through her again. So God will be dwelling in Zion, which is, you know, that that poetic name for Jerusalem, in his holy mountain. And then Zechariah 8.3, thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion and dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. So Jerusalem in the kingdom will be the desire of of the nations. It will be the most glorious place of all. I'm really glad I've had an opportunity to go to Jerusalem because I'm I'm looking forward to making a comparison between when I went there uh, and this life here and what it's going to look like in the kingdom. No comparison, I'm sure. But the point here is the proud will not have a place there. They're not going into, they're not going to go to Jerusalem in the kingdom. Uh, They will be purged out. Only the humble people of faith will be in the position of no shame because they will have been completely cleansed and restored. That fountain that is open will cleanse them completely. And that's exactly what God goes on to say in the next verse. Note verse 12. I will leave in your midst a meek and humble people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. Note the issue here. In your midst... There's a theme, and this is just uh, representative. We could develop this theme, which I will do a little more next time. But note uh, the proud taken away from your midst, verse 11. The humble trusting in your midst, and the King of Israel, the Lord, in your midst, as we see in verse 15, which we will not get to tonight. 
But the Lord is going to rid the world of the proud. And those left standing will be those who have been humbled. Isaiah 2 is so emphatic, saying repeatedly that the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. You know, God's got a problem with pride. I think it's the major issue. Really, it's the major issue when it comes to the lordship of God. Uh, we have a problem with, with him being Lord. Uh, it's a pride problem. That's the issue of the day of the Lord. And when God mentions sin, often pride is at the head of the list. For example, in Proverbs 6, 16 through 19, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. A proud look. First thing mentioned. Lots of things mentioned here. Seven things. But the first thing mentioned is a proud look. Pride is the number one thing on the list that God hates here which is an abomination to him, which is a way of saying he detests it thoroughly. Saving faith involves humbling oneself before the Lord. You put yourself down in recognition of his sovereign lordship authority, and you trust him to be your savior. We see this, for example, this key verse on faith in the Old Testament that the New Testament again builds on. Habakkuk 2.4, Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. In contrast, but's a contrast word. But the just shall live by his faith. On the one hand, you got the proud. On the other hand, you have those who live by faith, people of faith. They're not the proud. There are those that have been humbled before the lordship of God. God is going to remove the proud from Israel, but he is going to leave in their midst a meek and humble people who trust in the name of the Lord. God, in the great coming day of the Lord, is going to break Israel. And he is going to humble them. And those who are humbled will go in to the kingdom. Now, the New American Standard and the ESV both translate this, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. And both translate trust in the name of the Lord as those who take refuge in the name of the Lord. In the Old Testament, the sense of trusting in the Lord was taking refuge in him. It is to depend upon him, or as we would commonly say, to trust in him. Note again, the name of the Lord is emphasized. Those who come to the Lord in saving faith are those who call on the name of the Lord, verse 9, as we have seen, and humble, they trust in the name of the Lord, verse 12. It's a lot on the name of the Lord here. The name of the Lord is who he is. It's his person. Lord here is Yahweh. The unchanging, eternal, covenant, faithful God of Israel. Verse 13. The remnant of Israel shall do no unrighteousness and speak no lies. Nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. For they shall feed their flocks and lie down and no one shall make them afraid. Note this applies to the remnant of Israel. We know from Zechariah that two-thirds of the Jews will be purged out of the land. And God will bring a one-third remnant into the kingdom. Zechariah 13. And it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two-thirds in it shall be cut off and die. But one-third shall be left in it. I will bring one-third through the fire. will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, this is my people, and each one will say, 
the Lord is my God. That's where the refining process ultimately takes Israel. But most of them aren't going to make it. At the end of the day, when all Israel will be saved, that's a remnant. (laughs) That's a remnant. The truly saved people are those who know the Lord Yahweh as their God. And in faith, they call upon Him. They trust in His name. And note what will define them. They will be a changed people. They shall do no unrighteousness. That's what the verse says. Verse 13. Speak no lies, nor use a deceitful tongue. Now the phrase, shall do no unrighteousness, is better translated, shall do no injustice. The kingdom people will practice kingdom justice. They will live right according to kingdom ethics. This phrase, shall do no justice, is the identical phrase used in verse 5 to describe the Lord himself. So in the kingdom, the people of God will be godlike in their character. And that will make sense because they'll all now be operating under a new covenant by the power of the Holy Spirit controlling them in a way that they did not know before. True repentance is a life-changing reality because it's a heart-changing reality. And I don't think you'll find a better description of true repentance than that which David describes in Psalm 32 and 51. In Psalm 32, David writes, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. And then in chapter 51, verse 6, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts. God wants honest-to-God confession, honest-to-God acknowledgement of our sin problem, Uh, honest-to-God coming clean, so to speak, that is brutally honest and broken over sin. David goes on to say, so we know exactly what he's talking about in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. In other words, when he wasn't confessing, he wasn't coming clean in terms of his sin. It was miserable. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. You say, well, a believer can sin. Yeah, yeah. Here's here's the experience. It's not a pleasant experience. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Selah. Then something happened. I acknowledge my sin to you. That is, there's no more deceit in my spirit. There's no more lying about this. Uh, Truth is now coming forth. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. This is where there is no deceit in the Spirit. Not any longer. Not in true confession. This is where truth is in the inward parts. It's come clean. What is being described here in Zephaniah is the effects of a repentant Israel entering into a new covenant relationship with God in which he changes them from the inside out. And we read about this new covenant. uh, Many places we could go. The end of Ezekiel 39 would be a great place. But here in Jeremiah 31, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor. And every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. It's going to be a changed day in Israel. 
And note the emphasis here. There's a real emphasis here on how these people will be changed in terms of lying and deceit. You understand the name Jacob means heel grabber or supplanter. Uh, The idea of supplant meaning to take the place of through force or, or plotting. In Jacob's experience, it relates to being a usurper, a trickster, one who takes advantage of another through conniving. That was Jacob. Now, isn't this what uh, the Jews have been accused of generally through the years? I mean, to Jew someone is a slur, meaning to take advantage of someone. Now, it would be wrong to stereotype all Jews in this way. But through the years, they as a people in general, rightfully or wrongfully, have carried on the reputation of their forefather, Jacob, who was a conniving usurper or trickster. That's what Jacob was. God had to really take him through some things to get him to where he finally was a changed man, reflected in a new name, namely Israel, right? But Jacob, the old Jacob, he's kind of a conniver. Kind of, you know, he got, how'd he get the blessing? Did he honestly tell his father the truth? Isaac, here, it's me. You know, I'm here, I'm, I'm the truth teller. No, no, he's a liar. He's lying, flat out lying. Of course, Rebecca is encouraging, you know, they're all in this. But that's the background here. But note that now in the kingdom, as stated specifically about the remnant of Israel, Zephaniah 3.13 very definitively says, they shall do no injustice, they shall speak no lies, nor shall a deceitful tongue be found in their mouth. Wow, they shall now be honest truth-tellers, and Jerusalem, their great capital, shall now be called the city of truth. God is going to turn Jacob, the deceitful usurper into Israel, the truth teller. And he will do it on a national basis in the kingdom. Note what defines these kingdom people. Tremendous uh, emphasis here. A pure language, call on the name of the Lord, serve him. A meek and humble people, trust in the name of the Lord, do no injustice, speak no lies, no deceitful tongue. You know what we call this? This is being radically born again. This is when the Holy Spirit has come to live inside you in a radical way to where you are in a new covenant and God's law is clearly written on your heart in a way that has changed you from the inside out. This is a radically changed people. That's what we have in the kingdom. And then in the kingdom, Israel will finally know the lasting peace and security they have long desired. As Zephaniah 3.13 says, They shall feed their flocks and lie down, and no one shall make them afraid. We find other promises in the Old Testament along these lines. Micah 4.4, Everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree. What's the idea there? What's the picture there? They're just, they're just taking it easy. I mean, they're just kind of, this is, this is really living. This is nice. They're sitting there. Nobody's bothering them sitting under their vine, under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. No more will shame, pride, deceit, or fear be in their midst. This will truly be the golden age. This will be kingdom living, and it will be glorious. No wonder God's people long for the kingdom to come. Have you heard the saying, it was the worst of times, it was the best of times? You've heard that, right? I think there's some famous book with that, right? Yeah. Uh, That really defines the coming day of the Lord. 
First comes the worst of times. That's Zephaniah up until chapter 3, verse 9. The worst of times. But in that crucible, God will save a remnant of Israel that will go into the kingdom, which will be the best of times. Out of the worst of times comes the best of times. And that's what Jeremiah 30, verse 7 says, right? Alas, for the day is great. What day? The day of the Lord. So that none is like it. And it is the time of Jacob's trouble, that day of darkness. Day of the Lord, dark phase. But he shall be saved out of it. Day of the Lord, light phase. Right now, Israel longs for peace and and security, peace and safety. I don't know if you follow what's going on in Israel. It was not a good week over in Israel. I don't know how many Israelis were killed by, you know, Muslim terrorists, really. Uh, And one of the problems is, you know, you you follow this stuff if you do behind the scenes. This week, uh, it was reported that uh, there's a a Muslim cleric out of Iran who has, has calculated in the Quran that by July 8th, Israel will cease to exist. And the Muslims are all astir in Israel, not to mention the Jews. And some want to get in on this jihad. I mean, if you kill Jews, I mean, that's really good for you before Allah. You understand, you know, they want to kind of get in on, the, on, on this while the, the getting's good here. They want peace. From time to time, we have talked about peace. You know, a couple of years ago, we had the, the Abraham Accord. And from time to time, people say, well, maybe peace, maybe peace in our time. But you know what? The time never comes. And biblically lasting peace will not come until the Prince of Peace comes, who comes to set up the kingdom. Then they're going to sit under their fig tree and no one's going to make them afraid. But not until then. Until then, it's not going to be that way. For the world, the worst of times is yet to come, which will involve a great purge of the wicked from the world. It's one of the things God's doing in that day of the Lord. This will then be followed by the best of times in the kingdom age. Truly Israel will then fully experience, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack, I shall not want. But right now we live in the church age. That's where we are. We are the church. And right now God is building a forever family of believers in Christ consisting of both Jew and Gentile. And we are called the body of Christ. We are called the bride of Christ. And as the bride, you know, we're going to be right there at the Lord's right hand as his bride. And we're going to rule with Christ and we're going to reign with Christ. And wherever the Lord goes, we're going to be with the Lord, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. So here's where we are in terms of biblical events. Uh, We're in the church age. Right now, we don't know when, but we're expecting the rapture. Then comes that dark phase of the day of the Lord. Judgment that comes ultimately upon the whole world. And Jacob's right in the middle of the whole thing. Second coming of Christ. We have the dawning of the golden age. The millennial reign of Christ. The light phase. And of course that commences, you know, with the end of the millennial reign of Christ. Satan released and and, uh, (laughs) that dark experience where uh, they all come against Jerusalem and fire comes down to heaven and destroys them all. And then we go into the eternal, eternal state. We're not looking for the undertaker, right? If you are, maybe change your perspective. We're not looking for the undertaker. We're looking for the upper taker, right? We're not looking for the antichrist, but for the Christ. 
We're not looking for the tribulation period, but for the rapture. But indeed, indeed, ultimately we are looking for the kingdom to come. And we continue to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This has always been the ultimate goal of God's people down through the ages. We are looking forward to the kingdom. It is a most dominant theme throughout the whole of the scriptures. And even though we live in the church age, the ultimate goal is we're looking forward to the coming kingdom. And so we say, even so come, Lord Jesus. Let's uh, stand and have our closing song, and then I'll close in prayer here.